Welcome to an all-new episode of the Three Bid League podcast. As always, I'm Tyler, joined by my co-host Matt, and we are joined by the A10's ultimate man of mystery from many, many Twitter spaces, from the search season, from the UMass postgame spaces, and from the possibly defunct UMass basketball podcast, Curry Hicks Sage. Sage, thank you for joining us. Great to have. Like, what an introduction! I might, I might uh, send that to my wife. That was terrific. Um, I am still probably going to do some podcasts, but yeah, the spaces game has has, uh, has upended my my uh, regular calendar on the on the podcasting front, and it's just easier logistically. So um, I have uh, I have been uh, doing more and more of those in the last year or so. But I'll, we'll we'll do some we'll do some um, some the UMass podcast basketball podcast will never truly die. We'll, we'll always do something. Yeah. I mean, even last year, I missed all the spaces. I think you slipped that. looks like you put out uh three last season. So still going with it, but we want to start things off. Like you have your finger on the pulse of UMass basketball fans in a way that really no one else does with their fan base. At this time last year, it was, sunshine and the most beautiful roses in everyone's heads after the Frank Martin hire after a kind of rocky season, how are the UMass fans feeling about year two? You know, I, I don't, I presume you have some pretty plugged in listeners who really follow the landscape of the league and are kind of pretty online. So they'll know a bit of the backstory and it is a backstory that I've sort of, grown exhausted by in the sense that look in the end um whatever anyone says I think there kind of has to be a I think fan coach relationships at almost any level of the game while it's okay for them to it's probably even good for them to be amicable and uh, as friendly as possible. Ultimately, they're kind of going to be transactional affairs, which is to say, if the coach leads the team to victories uh, at a high clip, there's going to be a tremendous amount of forgiveness from the fan base, regardless of what that coach does on or off the floor that may otherwise alienate people. If the, co- if the coach does not lead the team to victories at a high clip, then every little thing they do on and off the floor is going to be scrutinized more heavily, which is a roundabout way of saying that, uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm not, I'm actually not interested in relitigating it at great length, but there were, there were some turbulent moments uh, throughout the uh, season, uh, the, the inaugural Frank Martin season in Amherst uh, between Frank and our fans and probably, you know, fans of other programs. Um, I am sort of willing to forgive and forget and have said as much on a number of occasions. I'm also not willing to um, or interested in kind of like just, you know, shutting up anytime I have any modest criticism. And while there were on the margins some less than tactful uh, statements from UMass fans, particularly some, some fans 
uh, frustrated with the playing time that Frank uh, doled out to his son last year, who was a fifth-year senior transfer. Um, I did not think on balance that there was such a high volume that his the intensity of his reaction was merited. It was not. And I, I've maintained that it was not. I also am a parent. I understand that there's a certain sensitivity with your kids and hearing people say that he shouldn't be playing and this and that, whatever. But it's interesting because Frank himself alluded throughout the year to like, if you have a problem with my players, you know, take it out with me, take it out with me. And I, you know, partly because I just don't, I'm just on the merits, like on, on, on just like as a principal opposed to sort of, um, ad hominem attacks on any student athlete. I think it's kind of lame. So I actually just took him at his word. And, and every time I was frustrated with his substitution patterns, which to be fair, often coincided with his playing of his son, I simply directed them at Frank Martin and expressed disagreement <laughs> with that. Right. And like, I just, and I think because a 10 basketball kind of sits in this interesting lane where it's, too big to not have fans who are engaged, but too small to be able to uh, ignore, right? Like if it's the Yankees, you can just kind of ignore it because the volume is so high. There, the A-10 sits in this funny gray area where like there's enough people who get pissed off online, but it's, but like they're also easy to find and it's in the tens or hundreds, not the like, thousands or tens of thousands you know so frank was at a number of times and, and frank just kind of this wasn't invited right like the fans weren't like frank what do you think you know he he's a very opinionated person as i think we all knew and during a couple of different post-game pressers he um expressed his frustration with disappointment in ways that were you know you can go back and read the quotes. I'll let you, you know, judge them as you see fit. Certainly, um, you know, I had a lovely interview with him I, I, uh, before the season started, and there's been no contact since. That's fine. I'm, I'm at peace with that. Um, and everybody asked about it just because, like, he talked about it in the press. You know, he talked about the fan base and people he's gotten after it with and whatever. Like, I, he blocked me. He blocked a lot of our fans. It is what it is, and I think my thing is this, like, I've been a UMass fan since I was uh, six or seven. I'm going on 38 in a couple of weeks. Haven't missed more than a handful of games in that three decade time period. Watch and didn't go to the school. Um, so I don't really care, you know, like sort of if it's not a pleasant feeling knowing that like, you know, the, the coach who leads the program you care a lot about probably isn't terribly enamored with you and your internet friends, but it's like, whatever, like we've, We've been here for a long time. We'll be here for a long time after. And uh, it's a lesson I learned from the, actually a, a UMass alum and rabid fan. I should give a shout out to Mark Bertrand, who's um, a quite prominent sports talker. I think he's like the number one talker in Boston now. And um, Boston, uh, Boston, they call him Beetle. Um, and he came on my show a number of years ago and he just made the point that like, this was pretty frank, but he was just like, never back down from criticizing, you know, in, in a healthy, fair way, administrators, coaches, whatever he goes, because like, 
you are going to be here long after they're gone. And like, you have to mind the store, so to speak, as a fan and make sure that, you know, and the thing is like, I think you guys know me, like, I actually don't, I really try not to be a provocateur for no reason, right? Like I, I call things as I see them. I try to be fair, um, but I'm opinionated, you know, and, and I, and I have a perspective and I don't, and have never seen myself as a kind of a, uh, like a member of, I'm not affiliated with the program, right? I'm a fan. And I think there's like a, and funny, because we'll talk later about chronicling the national search and stuff. And in that, I'm like, there's it's a different persona in some, to some extent, because with UMass fandom, it's just like, you you know, it's like Buddy, Buddy Garrity of um, Friday Night Lights fame said, you know, you can't fake boosterism. It comes from the heart. And so I just don't fake it. And like, if I, and, and I think Frank, in a way I kind of respect is a passionate guy and, you know, loyal to his guys. And he just like, he takes that a different way than I think other coaches who've been here have taken it. Um, not just with me, but just in general with the fan base. And, you know, if you look into his history, there's been similar dust ups with South Carolina people. And I don't know about K-State, but um, this is not actually all that unique, I don't think. And again, this is a long winded way of saying, if Frank goes 23 and 10 this year, like, you know, he can, I'll, I'll, we can, you know, I probably shouldn't say this on air because I'm, I'm obviously mostly joking, but you know, he can, I'll throw on the headgear and he can get a shot at me, you know, if they make the tournament or whatever. Right. Like, <laughs> and if not, like if they go, you know, 10 and 22 and, and I don't like the substitution patterns, I'll be like, those suck. It's not personal. It's just like, that's sort of the, the, the ways of the fan. And I, I think you know, most fans, I frankly, it's funny. Many fans I talk to have a much harder time with him than I do. Um, even though I think, like directly or otherwise, I've been on the receiving end of you know uh, some of his his critique. Um, I, I don't personalize it. Like I guess I've just been online so long that like you're kind of immune to sort of that stuff. So when he criticized our fans, everyone's tagging me, and I'm just like, all right, like whatever. If he's talking about me, he's talking about me. If he's not, but like whatever. I don't. It's, I. I never felt like I had crossed any lines. So I'm sort of at peace with that. Um, and I think I apologize for making one passive, you know, sort of remark in early in the season. I said something like, we're going to have to have an uncomfortable conversation about one of the, the minutes that one of the starters is getting. I'm like, I was referring to his kid. That was the extent of my comments ever about his kid, negative comments. Um, so I never felt like I crossed the line. Um, and I, and I just want to like sort of, See them win a bunch of basketball games and have this all be you know this kind of forgotten episode in the past but I think because it's unusual for a coach to so directly like take shots at a rel relatively small fan base uh it became uh it kind of metastasized and became more of a um you know more of a meme or whatever than than I had anticipated it's an interesting combination because Frank Martin is certainly a guy that the word opinionated is going to come up over the years. Yes. And now you, you combine him with this small, like you said, fan base, but it's a very loud fan base and a very me, online fan base for yeah. sure. Yeah. And through what you've put together, which for people who aren't familiar is essentially a Twitter version of like a post game talk radio show where you're kind yes. of the host with 
dozens of people trying to jump in, make their commentary. Sometimes several hundred, you know. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very big listener base, but like this is a fan base where if you want to find out what people are saying about you, you can find it and you don't have to look very hard for it. Correct. So I think for UMass overall, though, it's fair to say it was a very up and down season. I mean, you go from the highs of winning the Myrtle Beach Invitational in November to putting up 38 points in the A-10 tournament against Richmond. So certainly showed, I think Frank showed that winning can happen in Amherst. But I'm just curious for your thoughts. After the season, pretty much all of the key pieces left the team. Noah Fernandes, grad transfer directors. You lose RJ Luis, an A-10 all-rookie player to St. John's. Sixth man, DeAndre Dominguez, decided to transfer. But based on how the season finished, do you think that starting fresh with a talented group of freshmen and transfers is that something that can benefit this group in the long term, or does losing such a high volume of contributors set the rebuild back at all? I think it's a bit of both, and it is hard to kind of suss out what is a function of just like the portal era and what is mm-hmm. a function of kind of either Frank or the individual player being like, this is a bad fit, um, because you know, everywhere suffered so many, you know, so many people leaving, right? But it is true that every player on the roster that was eligible to transfer, transferred, um, every single one. Um, and well, Keon Thompson I, stayed, right? Uh, who? Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Keon Thompson was the only yeah. one. Sorry, Keon Thompson is the is the only one. Um, who who returned. That is correct. My fault. I totally am wrong on that. Uh, so all but one. Um, and then Diggins and uh, Matt Cross um, had already transferred. So they, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they were not eligible to transfer. So, um, but getting back to the question, um, I think my take on Frank, and I suspect he would say something similar, maybe in different uh language but he is and if and this is true if you look at his teams at other stops i i have characterized him pretty early on as um a group-based coach right and like to some which by which i mean if he gets the right group that dovetails with his temperament and his style i think he can be terrific I think there's, 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 there's obviously, you know, I mean, he made a final four, he made an elite eight at Kansas state. Um, You know, he knows how to get the most out of certain groups of kids. If you look at other Frank Martin teams, um, that's not been the case. You know, there was a, there was a 2016 team that opened, I think 15 and 0 and 19 and two and missed the tournament. Um, there was this year's UMass team that opened eight and one very promising and was just boat raced off the floor against Richmond by 38. Right. So this is not, this is neither a knock nor a compliment. It's just, I think he, he is very, because of his, and I think he'd probably say this. he sort of alluded to it at points during the season and some of his more insightful comments during post-game press conferences. Um, 
that like, you know, he felt like the, the, the kids weren't vocal enough and he felt like, you know, there was just, it was just personality wise. It didn't, it didn't sort of align with his, uh, his style. Right. And so I think that there is a very, you know, and that's true for many coaches, right? Cause very few coaches are just great every year. Like, let's be real here. It's a hard job. It's a hard profession. And, but his, I mean, you know, the fact that like, you could be a final four team and also then be, you know, so, you know, like, you know, not a final four team, right? Like the fact he made one tournament in South Carolina and he made a final four, right. Which is interesting, right? Like, I think there's something to that. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just think like, I'm not sure that the defections matter all that much, especially in this kind of modern era where, like it or not, pretty much everyone in the country has a new team every year. And I heard an astute coach once tell me recently, like, look, all the thing about like culture and this and that is like kind of nonsense in the sense that you have to rebuild, you have to rebuild your culture every year, even if you have two new guys, you know, like, yeah, it obviously helps if most of the guys are, you know, have already acculturated to it and can kind of bring the others along. But there's always like every team is like, you know, is, is like a delicate balance of, uh, component parts right and I think that but I think that's even more true with Frank Martin teams just by virtue of how strong a personality he is and kind of how particular he is about the types of kids that work for what he and, and it's interesting because if you listen to him like he'll talk with great specificity about dudes he co- which is I think cool actually um, and he'll talk with great specificity about players he had years ago you know, and what they did and, and their and he'll talk about it in terms of like their temperament and their affect on the floor and kind of like, you know, and it's just so clear that there's like a type of guy that he wants. It's, it's very easy to say like, you know, the hard nosed, you know, tough kid who can take coaching and whatever. I think that's the, the abiding, you know, truth of it, but it's almost like, you know, Frank obviously knows it when he sees it. And I think he has done what sounds like a pretty nice job of bringing in a group this year, I think they were a little more intentional by their own admission about bringing in sort of their guys. Um, they did that last year too. Fernandez and, and Dominguez were, were McCall players as was TJ Weeks, all of whom are gone. So this is the full Martin roster. Um, but also, you know, I think they took some flyers on kids, you know, pretty quickly by nature of the you know, just when they got here and all the like. And I think this year, um, and he's talked about this, you know, like all the freshmen coming in, he's been talking to those guys for six, eight, nine months before they even arrived because he was recruiting them immediately upon arrival. So I think to answer, you know, it's like, again, I'm, I tend to be long-winded, but to answer your question, um, I think that I don't know that it matters. You know, they lost some really good players. They gained some really good players, I think. And I think everybody kind of is in this place now where everybody's putting together one season teams would, you know, and so I'm not sure it, it net net, it will affect them dramatically, despite the fact that, you know, Fernandes and, and, um, and Luis are really, really good players. TJ had some, you know, and Dominguez, those are good players, you know, um, Wilden's Levesque was a decent player. Um, um, my God, my brain is shot right now. Uh, what's the kid from Isaac LIU Conte. Brooklyn our center? I, Isaac Conte. Oh my God. Um, he'll do he up good, at UMass. He was a good player. And so, you know, so yeah, they lost some good dudes. They also gained some really good dudes, both in the portal and as true freshmen. Um, and so 
net net, it's kind of hard to say like w- which is going to be a better a better scenario. And I think it's it's about how well the the group gels. You know, I I, I really do. Yeah, and the players that Frank Martin likes are no secret on his own podcast, and we can withhold uh, opinions on the name of it just being Frank. But he ha- he just keeps mentioning through all these it's episodes. It's not a bad name, to be fair. It's not a bad uh, name. It bugs me. I'm not sure why, but it bugs me. <laughs> but he, he just keeps mentioning on there about hustle players, whether it's like you said, he's talking about some guy he had at Kansas State back in like 2008, or now more specifically coming back from their Puerto Rico trip a few weeks ago. The one biggest takeaway he had was how much those guys hustled. So we'll see how much these new guys fit, but let's leave out uh, Josh Cohen here for a second, coming in from St. Francis, a guy who could potentially be a star. Is there one or two other newcomers on this team that you have personally started to get excited about? Yeah, uh, there's, there's kind of four actually. Um, But I would say Robert Davis um, is a true freshman who I think we're in this weird moment where uh, because of like, we're still living through the uh, like extra year for guys, the recruiting rankings um, and like recruitment of true freshmen is like all fucked up. I don't know if I can curse in here. Um, yeah. You can. Because, you can. Yeah. I don't do it gratuitously though. Because, um, uh, because basically like, there was no need to offer like true freshmen to some extent because so many of the power fives are just like, we'll just poach guys from the A-10 and elsewhere. And so Davis had like a small offer list, but it was clear he was ascendant. And then he had a great AAU season like uh, last summer and then a really good senior season. And it was very clear he was going to be really good. He can shoot the shit out of it. Um, and he's a really like compelling kid who seems, you just like has a certain confidence, like that's very precocious and unusual for a, f- a true freshman, very secure in his own skin, and he's like six six, can really shoot it, can put the ball on the floor. Uh, I think he'll play a ton at the two. He can defend, um, and um, we've been excited about him since he signed. I think you know he played on like a really elite AAU team, so his numbers. You know, I think he was like one of the top sh- three point shooters on the EYBL circuit. And, um, just a really good player, and um, he's from Detroit originally. I think he played his high school ball. And, prep school in California um, just a really really good player and 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 like a leader uh, very vocal and so I'm excited about him um, and then Jalen Curry who they signed late true freshman top 100 top 150 kid had some really big time offers coming out of high school um, and again I think like we're in this weird universe where between um just like the portal and NIL and all the rest of it um, without knowing all the specifics. I think like he was another kid where like, you know, I think he had, you know, if you trust the offers list, I think he had a Memphis offer and a a bunch of places, but you know, because of how weird it is a freshman right now, he just ended up here late and had a, had a tie to Frank through Frank has a pretty big network. So uh, I think maybe, maybe his cousin or somebody played for Frank. There was some connection there. He's really good, and 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 I think he'll step in right away and either start at the one or play a ton of minutes at the one. He's a lefty; he can really uh, slice up defenses. He'll make mistakes, um, you know, like he he can do a lot. Like he he's he's a he's a smooth 
you know, lefty scorer. Like you can, you can just see some guys you can just tell on tape. You're like, that kid's ready to go. You know what I mean? Which doesn't mean he won't have six turnover games where he tries to do a little too much. You know what I mean? But, but the talent is, is kind of undeniable in the same way that RJ Luis was last year, I think. Um, and RJ grew as the season went on as well. Um, so those two as a, you know, I would not be shocked if, if that's a, your starting backcourt by the A-10 tournament. Um, you know, um, I just think both are, are going to be really good. And then, uh, then the late pickup that I think is the surprise name that has not been getting his due um, in the kind of preseason, you know, like you wouldn't, cause, and I wouldn't blame anyone. It's just so hard now when you see like, seven new players in every team and you just look quickly and you're like, all right, how much did he average at the last school? Okay. Two points. Like, all right, next, who else, you know, but Daniel Hankins Sanford uh, or Sanford Hankins, I forget. Um, is a South Carolina, yeah. Who is a South Carolina transfer who was recruited by Frank out of high school. Um, ended up staying, I think he was a top 150 kid, six, eight can move, you know, really athletically can put the ball on the floor a little bit. Some of the highlights of him from Puerto Rico were really impressive, probably most impressive on the team. And some, to some extent, I didn't watch all those games, but just in terms of like, you know, there was like a tiny shade of, dare I say, like Hassan French for a 10 heads, you know, um, again, I'm not suggesting that he's comparable, but you know, just, you know, that kind of like athletic big who can put it on the floor a little, catch it in traffic make a spin move and get to the rim and and again like he he at south carolina totally different system guy who came in after frank left didn't recruit him and so often those are those are common scenarios where like guys whose talent is pretty good just that's not who recruited them they're trying to do their own thing i don't know if he played behind Gigi jackson who was like a top 10 kid but i presume they're they're sort of the same size. So maybe that, that helped impact it too. Also just freshman in the sec as a big is always tough. You know, you're playing 23 year old grown men. Um, so I, I think he could be really good, especially with the dearth of a relative dearth of options in the front court for UMass. Um, I think he'll just get a lot of minutes and um, I'm very excited about him. And the final one that I um, am intrigued by is, uh, a kid named Marquis Worthy, Marquis or Marquise. It's a great name, by the way. Uh, Worthy of Marquis, you know, I mean, of a name on, a, on the Marquis. Um, he's a tough kind of like downhill, you know, running back kind of bowling ball, like Frank Martin type of guard who can get to the rim, who can defend, who played at a really good prep program out in California. And, uh, you know, He'll have to probably work on a shot a little, but he can shoot it a bit. Um, it just like kind of gets to the rim, good body control. And another kind of just burly, bruising guard, um, you know, uh, to, to, to supplement what is, I think, a pretty good backcourt depth, um, albeit youthful. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to see what he can do. So you mentioned all these new guys coming into the backcourt. And- the one who I've really gotten my eye on at this point is Jalen Curry. Just continue to read the two words that stick out, athletic score. And that's somebody that you're going to need next to your two returning guards in Thompson and Rashul Diggins. Two guys who, personally, I thought really struggled early on in the year and 
got it together in the last month or so to kind of stabilize this team and pull them out of the basement. But what do you see from those two this year? Do you think they're going to be able to continue to grow on the progress they made? Are they kind of the guys we saw at the end of the season? Or might these freshmen just kind of end up jumping ahead of them before all is said and done? You know, it's a really interesting question because so much of that hinges on what Frank wants to do personnel-wise. Um, because I don't think the gap between these freshmen that I alluded to um, and the two kids you mentioned is terribly wide. But it's a question of, like, if you're Frank, like, are you trying to get your – and I think this is for coaches around the country now. <clears throat> and I apologize if it's a bit of a roundabout answer, but what do you do with true freshmen who are really good? Do you play them a ton with the hope that they'll return? Do you, uh, you know, and, and because they're content with their minutes, do you maybe let them develop a bit more slowly so that they're not as noticed in the portal and that you can keep them a second year? Do you, right? Like, and I think for the most part, you just play who's going to help you win basketball games. But when you have a lot of guards, I think that are, you know, relatively close in, in talent, you know, slash experience, a hard one. It's a hard one. And even the kid, like, um, can't pronounce his last name, but Jaden Nagu, um, he's a really, like, supposed to be a really good defender and, like, kind of a Frank Martin style player. So he'll get some minutes. And Diggins is an interesting one, right? Because tremendously high ceiling, top 60 kid out of high school, went to UConn, you know, played behind RJ Cole, uh, Cole and really barely played. And I remember Frank in a post and a press conference last year was talking about just like how the key was like getting his getting him to find the love of basketball again, right? That was but there were moments like where he was the best player on the floor in two or three games. You know, he also shot like, you know, twenty eighteen percent from three or whatever it was. So that's an interesting one because like I still think Diggins has a very high high upside and and showed some moments. He also was banged up and was injured stretches. And now he's had a full year under his belt. Um, I, you know, so he's a kind of an interesting wild card. I think like, uh, like fairly low, low floor and a, quite a high ceiling. Whereas I think Keon Thompson is like a, is like a fairly high floor, low ceiling. Does that make sense? Um, and yeah, I just think like, it's really going to be a question of, you know, who emerges in the non-conference in, in the backcourt. It's a lot of competition. Whereas I think in the front court, you know, Matt Cross is your anchor. Um, Josh Cohn, as you said, really good scoring big. Um, and then Hank and Sanford is going to get minutes. Oh, and I didn't even remember this. This is like another wild card. The kid Tariq Foster, who had originally signed at VCU, and when there was a coaching change there, came to UMass. That was a really nice late pickup. Really nice. Um, 6'8", athletic, played at Putnam Science, where you know a lot of great players in the A-10 have come out of. So he's another one. But you know the front court, there's fewer guys in it, and they're all kind of good or you know high upside. Um, so they'll all get their minutes. Back court, yeah. I mean, you're, it's it's. I have no clue who's going to sort of win out there, and um, you know, I, I just. I don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. We just haven't seen these guys play at the collegiate level yet, so it's hard to say. 
freshmen are weird, you know, like freshmen are always weird. Yeah, definitely going to be difficult to predict. And I mean, last year too, we saw with UMass, they actually led the nation in bench minutes. So I wouldn't be that surprised to see all these guys get a chance at some point and it very well could look different. I, I like what you said at the A-10 tournament, how by the end of the season, it could be two freshmen starting. But before we move on from transfers and freshmen, I, I did just want to get your quick take on Josh Cohen, since he is maybe one of the most productive incoming transfers to the league this year, a guy who averaged 22 points a game, albeit in the NEC, which was the worst conference in college basketball last year. How do you think his game is going to translate to the A-10? Because clearly UMass needed a reliable inside scorer. Uh, this was one of the worst two-point shooting teams in the country, and that's where Cohen lives is around the rim. So how much do you think he'll be able to maintain his level of scoring, jumping up to a higher league? Well, I think it's not reasonable to expect him to maintain the 22 points a game. Right. Um, and also Frank teams tend to be fairly balanced, right? You don't typically run everything through one guy. If you look at his teams, historically, Michael Beasley, notwithstanding. Um, so yeah, let's not, let's pump the brakes on the, on the 22 point anything. But encouragingly, if you look at the numbers Cone put up in uh, limited non-conference games against power fives they were quite good uh, i don't have it in front of me but i, I want to say he scored i don't know 30 against like somebody legit some national caliber team and um it's funny because you watch his tape and he's one of these throwback dudes where every shot whether he's facing who's in that league like robert morris i'm trying to think of who else is in that league um Jeremy dickinson <laughs> Formerly Robert Morris. Oh, oh, sorry. So they're in the, they're in the NEC. Yeah, it wasn't great. Francis is. Um... All right. So whether it's against LIU Brooklyn or it's against Kentucky, and I know he didn't actually play Kentucky, but you know what I'm saying. Um, the degree of difficulty on his kind of like seven to ten foot jump hook, it always looks like kind of ugly and like it's not going in, and it always goes in. <laughs> so. I, I kind of think it'll translate maybe more than some some think. Um, he he, you know, he has pretty good body control. He's he's good footwork. But again, it's like watch his tape. It's not like he's like out athletic. You know, he's not like using like dominant athleticism to like posterize guys or you know cross dudes up and step back and hit a twenty two footer. Right? Like this is a, you know. I hate the cliche, but, you know, like a lunch pail guy who can just kind of get it done and is effective. It feels like every time I watch him, his highlights, it's, you know, kind of the ball like rattles around the rim nine times and goes in after like a shot that you're like, oh, that's kind of a tough, tough little jump hook. It was well defended. And, oh, it's in again, you know. So <laughs> it's a funny, I mean, it's just a funny one to watch. It's like I was joking with someone about him. I was like, the degree of difficulty on every make is like a 10 you know, and yet he makes everything. So I, I, I think, you know, I would, if I were a betting man, sometimes I am, I'd put his over under total at like 13.2, 13.3, you know, um, 
but anywhere from like 12.8 to 14.5 kind of thing. And I think he'll be a very reliable post presence, get a lot of rebounds, hold it down in the paint, key ingredient to, you know, uh, maintaining stability on, on both ends. Like he's a, he's a really solid, nice pickup. Yeah. And my favorite Josh Cohen stat late February, St. Francis beat fairly Dickinson. Cohen got 31 points on 11 of 12 shooting. And of course, a few weeks later, fairly Dickinson would figure out how to, I don't want to say shut down because they still gave up 21 points to him, but do better against Zach Eady than they were able to do against Josh Cohen. I love that. That's a great stat. And uh, shout out to Tobin Anderson, just a spectacularly gifted coach who, um, you know, uh, I had I had a tweet about him in my as my pinned tweet for some time after they won that because the moment he got hired, I was like, this guy, long overdue for a D1 opportunity. I thought he would win there, maybe get an A10 job. He ended up getting Iona, but um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't liken I wouldn't liken Cone to Edie, but I I do think like also worth noting <laughs> that Australia Dickinson team, team was the smallest team in the country, so. <laughs> the 11 for 12 performance from uh, Cohen actually kind of checks out. I wasn't going to include that part, but you transitioned this perfectly. We want to take this into the hashtag search season, your off season specialty for anyone who really pays attention or listened to you on here last year. They know that you went ahead and dug up some sources and were really kind of leading the charge to figuring out who UMass was going to hire before they settled on Frank Martin. Well, last off season, you expanded it nationally to, I think you told us before about a dozen different schools. So how did this go from just being a UMass fan who had some fun with it? You had said you wanted to pick one school and try to figure it out to this just being a massive, massive thing. Well, just speaking about my own temperament for a moment, um, <laughs> I have a strange tendency to get like kind of hyper obsessed with one uh, it with one thing or another for a period of time. UMass basketball just happens to be the one that has stuck for thirty odd years. I can't really explain why because <laughs> it's not like there's been a whole lot of success outside when I was eight, nine, and ten years old, um, and. There's something about the coaching carousel that's always intrigued me too. And just the combination of um, not just the basketball, right. But like the, the palace intrigue and the, the rumor mongering and the kind of like, it's almost like a gamified experience to, to, to track it. Like who's doing what it's, there's like almost a very political element where people are behind the scenes and trying to, you know, information is scarce and they're trying to get it here. And, and there's so much more than meets the eye and there's sort of these power players at the top and search firms and certain agents and whatever, who, who are kind of hoping much of the time that none of this gets out into the world. And this is not the case at like the Kentuckys and the Georgetowns and you know places where people are tracking the, you know, private jets that are flying into these regional airports, right? There's, that's never going to be the case at Auburn or whatever. Cause people are so passionate and pay attention, but, at kind of the next rung below, like often they rely on uh, opacity, right? Um, where people don't know what's going on. And I found it really interesting. And during the Frank Martin search where I was trying to dig in on that, 
I developed a lot of sources because a lot of the people listening, I realized pretty early on when I was when I was chronicling that search, were not. I mean, yeah, there was UMass fans and A10 fans, but a lot of them were just you know basketball ops at you know I'm making it up, but you know South Alabama associate assistant to the this to the that at you know Cornell and like all and you're like why are these people on here and then you realize a I think that I was doing a fairly good job at it because I was just really thorough and passionate about it um and then b like if you're in the profession it almost becomes like really helpful because it's a carousel so there's not that many jobs in this right and so when one opens another you know when one you know there that means another's gonna open and you know, somebody's going to go here and who's going to move there. And so the people sort of sort of trying to track the, the broader movement, almost like a, so I, I realized like, oh, I have that, at the very least, like, not only can I appeal to fan bases, but I can be kind of like the trade press for the industry, if you will. And over time, and I, I've known people around college basketball for many, many years and like, you know, been sort of tweeting freely. And I used to write for places and, you know, past life. And so like, I wasn't totally in the dark, but I think the credibility I gained from the Martin one like helped and I met interesting people through that. And then they were kind of like, you should talk to this person. You should talk to this person. And so as the year went on, I was cultivating more and more sources. And I was like, I'm just going to chronicle. I was going to do one, but I was like, that's not quite going to work because it's like happening every night. And some of these searches end up being two days. Some of them end up being 22 days. So I just started following like the whole landscape and picking, you, know, you can't do everyone, but if there was 60 or 65 of these, like we definitely touched on 25, 30, you know, but you know, there was a few, like the Providence stuff that was so fascinating with Ed Cooley and Georgetown and all the dynamics and Kim English leaving. And then, um, and so it all is kind of like connected. And then fans of like those schools will tune, would, would get word of it and they get really fired up for three, four, five, six days. And then they would tune in. And so then, you know, and then some of them were just like, oh, this was kind of an interesting show. Like, I like the topic. You're, you you found an interesting topic. So they would stay tuned in when I got to other programs. And then we had the Bobby Huggins thing in, in June or whenever that was. So search season kind of never ended. And, uh, you know, you can't, you know, you kind of just, you can't fake what, what you find interesting. And I, I just found uh of the backstory of all these so, so interesting. And, um, you know, there's just so much more to it in terms of like what's really going on than, you know, let's hire a qualified basketball coach, right? It's, there's a, there's a lot of machinations and, and, and backroom dealing that, uh, sometimes it's quite straightforward, but sometimes there's a lot of backroom dealing. And I think like Dan's, you know, college basketball in general, I, I kind of believe, has become, and the coverage of it, unfortunately, has become a little too chummy, a little too niche. Um, and I think that the fans uh, have a right to know certain stuff and that, um, you know, the source um, kind of the source uh, writer relationship over a lot of the national guys has become almost like too transactional to where you're just not as a fan, like getting the full story. And that's true in you know, any kind of journalistic medium, but when you care about it, <clears throat> you don't have a whole lot to lose. And, you know, you're just like, why not? Let's do it. And so I, I, I did it and I, I think I'll do it again this year. And we got some sponsors and it, 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 it gained some, you know, success. And I, you know, I feel 
I think, I think once you, it sounds kind of like, why would I care about that? But then once you listen and you learn some of these backstories, it's very, very interesting. Um, and now, especially with the portal and NIL and like the ways in which coaching decisions or, or the ways in which like a coach does things have become so important because it's not just like getting a guy who can win anymore. It's like, can you get a guy who knows how to navigate the portal, who has the relationships to fundraise quickly for NIL, who, who's well-connected enough to rebuild their roster fast to, you know, so there's like all these new factors that are kind of coming in and, and, and um, making it even more uh, multi-dimensional. And I just found it like endlessly intriguing and never got bored. So I kept going. And if anyone wants to understand how deep you were going into this, Kind of my favorite little moment of flipping on your show during the spring. It was like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, well past 10 p.m. out in the East. And I put on the show, and there is a gentleman on there who was a private high school coach in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it broke into like a 20-minute discussion about how like the public versus private high school athletic system works down in that state. And like it every time I put it on, it was some sort of like wildly fascinating nugget like that, where maybe it was about Providence or maybe it was just literally about like high schools in Oklahoma. I mean, and, and it's like, if you just heard that, you'd be like, why would I ever want to listen to that? But generally speaking, those, those nuggets came in the context of some sort of search and understanding the, there's the one thing I've always loved about, college basketball that's unique from professional landscape i have said it i've used the word a million times but with each of these searches they're all kind there's similarities of course but there's also like especially at, at the mid-major level and below they're so idiosyncratic you know like everyone is like one of them is like you know there's one <laughs> i won't say which program but at a tiny low budget D1 this year. <laughs> You'll like this. There was a hire. I won't say which one. And this was one of the lowest budget D1 programs in the country. And I learned through a source who had been listening to my show for some time that at that program, one particular booster made the hire. That's just how it was. Because it wasn't a big budget, this booster work. Lo and behold, I got put on, put in touch with person who was going directly back and forth with the booster as sort of like, and the booster doesn't know anything about search season, the show. He's texting the other guy, who the hell is this guy texting me? He's like, he's the, and the answer is like, he's the guy who should help you make the hire. <laughs> Now I'm like getting called. So, so so then that word gets out a little from somebody. Now I'm having assistant coaches around the country hitting me up like, what do you know about that job? Because like getting intel on some of these places is very hard. You know, it, you can't just do a Google search on a, you know, our, uh, a Ken Palm 300 team and quickly learn about who the power players are in a hiring process. It's just so, there's no one who's written about that at great length, right? And so you just, 
and and as a result, that things like that Oklahoma guy, I don't remember the context of that particular conversation, but I don't either. That's little, the funniest part. L- little things like that sort of serve as uh, as clues to helping understand one of these particular searches. And sometimes, you know, you go down a rabbit hole and it's like, this is useless. We 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 didn't that was we didn't need to do that. That was a waste of twenty minutes. But other times, like some person will kind of unwittingly stumble across like what ends up being the key piece of the puzzle. And from there, it opens the door to like actually understanding who's making the call here. And you're like, Oh, and that, and like, you, know, you have to be really careful. And I, I made mistakes, but I was always like, I tried to be really, really um, transparent about, cause I also think one of the things about sources, we, we did, we did a lot of talking about kind of the anatomy of, of a source and a leak. And, you know, so often I think the public doesn't get the full story of, you know, sources aren't just, uh, you know, sometimes they are, but they're rarely just helpful uh, friends who just want to provide the public with information, right? They have agendas too. And I had an agenda, which was just kind of like the, the, <laughs> the agenda was the dopamine I was getting from, uh, chasing all this shit but the point is like i was trying to be very as transparent as possible about like i'll be like look i really trust the source he was correct on three big things but you know he also got one thing wrong so take this where you you know don't presume like so i would i was not trying to be uh all-knowing and i think a lot of times a lot of the national college media can be no, not always in a bad way, but there's just a way in which like they're trying to sort of present themselves as like the definitive authority on something. And the reality is like once you have a few hundred sources that you're talking to all the time, like you know who's full of shit, who's not, who's pushing an agenda, who's not. And you can share a little bit of that with the with the, you know, public who for <clears throat> short stretches of a t- at a time are obsessed with finding it out, you know, because they when when your school is going through a search, like in your, you know, it's a, often a once every five, once every 10 year deal. If you're a passionate fan of that program, like you are really locked in, right? And you're looking for any little nugget. And so as the search season evolved, other fan bases were like hitting me up and being like, hey, can you come on our spaces and tell us about the broader landscape and how we fit in and who, what you've heard? And so it kind of became fun where you're like a little bit of like a fan's uh, advocate, because so often I do think the fan is left in the dark on this because you have the powers that be and, you know, we're the ones that are, you know, sitting through it every winter and, you know, you want to make sure you're not going to get a guy who you know is going to be a 14, 17 perennial type. So there was something fun about, you know, it's, it felt like a slightly righteous cause, however bizarre. Did you have any where you felt like you really just kind of got fooled? Like, oh, so-and-so told me this place is hiring this guy. And then it ended up just not happening. And you you kind of believed that it was going to go that way. So I think because I made it kind of clear to listeners early on that I wasn't necessarily first and foremost interested in, like, getting the scoop first. And was rather interested in, and you know, that's fun too. Once in a while you get it, it's a feather in your cap. But that I was mostly interested in like getting it right, but also like where I got little things wrong, being very forthcoming about that. I 
I was lucky enough to not be played as much by sources. I think people were like, okay, this guy's not just going to take my, my shtick at face value and put it out there. Right. And I think that during the Frank search, I probably, there was probably more stuff that I was like, I, I just was like, I couldn't verify it. And I probably ran with it a little too quickly. It was like someone telling me like that they heard from someone else kind of thing. And I'd sort of like make it, I, there was times where I was probably in that I was a little, um, you know, a little, a little off base, but this year, like, and I'm sure some listener will be like, Oh, you dropped the ball on this. There were probably moments. Um, but no, I, I don't, I don't feel like I got burned too badly this year. I, I wasn't always right, but, um, I think I was like, I don't recall any super prominent L's, you know, I think probably early on. Yeah, actually, you know what? No, I gotta be honest. Like, there was a point in the St. John search very early, long before they even fired Mike Anderson, where I thought that some people that they were, I, I did not think, I, I was like, I don't think Patino's coming there. Um, and I was wrong there. Like, I, I mean, I eventually was like, he's going to come there before he did. But I think what I, the mistakes I made were probably, because the weird thing about search season is like the nugget, the, the information trickles in and then, and then all of a sudden it's like a deluge and you have to like suss it out. And so in a probably like over eager attempt to convey some information, I probably was, was running with stuff that was not as solid as I would have liked. But even in that moment, I would, I would note that I was being speculative. I'd be like, I don't know, but like, you know, and so I, you know, you miss when you, Whenever you make predictions without a ton of information, you're going to miss. And I, and I was like, but I would always note that like, and I would even, I think I even did stuff like crazy predictions of the week, you know? So on those things, I was often wrong, but I, those are also like the things that were intentionally kind of me, like, you know, shooting my shot. So I'm very curious without obviously like naming situations, but, once this started to get momentum and you got like, let's say like a month into it, how often were you finding yourself trying to hunt down sources for school X versus like, oh, their director of basketball operations just happened to pop up in your DMs? Oh, okay. Good question. Um, definitely a bit of both. Um, but the thing is, if you popped up in my DMs, you know, in the throes of a search, then it's very clear you have an agenda, right? Not in a bad way, but it just means like you have an angle and you're, you, have a, you have a desired outcome or, right? And so I think you have to be very careful to like not take those people at face value because that's a, that becomes like a brazenly transactional dynamic. Whereas I think what helped me was in, December, January, February, early March, I was building deeper and deeper relationships with people who were kind of connecting me to other people or who were themselves connected to other people, right? Who were then sharing what they were hearing, right? And also, one of the things that's really, without giving too much of my, 
my, my uh, secret sauce away is like a lot of the times in this, in this highly idiosyncratic environment, your best sources are not in basketball, right? Like they're people with institutional ties. They're people who are friends of the money people. There are people who are, you know, who's, uh, you know, you know, kids, you know, who, there are people who are our money people that you worked with and are friendly with two years, you know, from, for going back five, 10 years at another job. And, you know, their parent is, is, you know, some, you know, trustee, or I, I mean, I don't know if I actually had any trustees, but you get, you get what I'm saying. Right. And so, or their friends. with So when it gets down to like those moments, like you actually lean a lot on, I mean, it definitely had great basketball connections and there were definitely people like, let's be honest, there, there are definitely people who, who are representing guys or are, you know, in their camp, let's just say, who will share things with you with the hope that you're not going to burn their guy. And I'm generally okay with that. Um, and there were there, and I've even been forthcoming. There are a few guys um, that I really liked right? that I've, I'm like, this guy's going to be a great coach that you get to know. And I think journalists have the same exact thing. They just don't always acknowledge that, but that's what they're doing. They're kind of doing the bidding of that person. And I would just come right out and be like, I'm going to mention 20 names tonight, two or three of them I've talked to and like, I'm going to name six more that I've never met that I also think are good from talking to people I trust. But I just want you to know that because I think once you're forthcoming about that, then, and once you also include a bunch of other people, then, you know, and my agenda to some extent, we're going a little off the rails here, but my agenda to some extent was like, I became obsessed with the idea that a lot of the ways hiring is done um, is, is just flawed and based on, you know, this kind of strange, uh, insular network of of powerful people who make connections and like sort of make things happen. But one of the things those people are responsive to is kind of internet sentiment. Um, sometimes they'll acknowledge this, sometimes they won't. But I wanted to push the, after a while, I kind of became obsessed with this idea of like pushing the, the notion that, um, you know, certain types of coaches that are like non-traditional like out of the d2 ranks or high prep or you know d3 can be more successful than some of the ways in which we usually bring people up especially in this new era um and i would have and i had fans like who were running data on some of this stuff you know and like testing theories and like, so i had an agenda in that way um but how many were uh, like, you know, directly connected versus just like people I knew, uh, varied widely on the day, all, all of the above. Um, but also like, I just, I've come through as like non-traditional sources, but a lot of times the basketball world itself, once you're kind of immersed in some of this, like you get a lot of the same stuff and it, it's like a game of telephone and it kind of like every, it's very gossipy. And so to really understand what's going on, you need to have, you, you know, your you need to be plugged into um, the president's office, the AD's office, not just through the AD, but you know, who the, like so. I went down some wild rabbit holes, and 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 <laughs> I had a friend because because the thing that's tricky about it is just explaining like why you care, you know. And I think that's the one everyone's like, oh, be passionate about something, you know, like it's great, you know. 
except when you really are passionate about something and you're kind of obsessed with it for, and it's, you can't really explain why people are like, and they're not wrong. Like it's kind of weird. Like, why do you care? But then once they got it, they're like, that is kind of interesting. Or they listen to the show. They're like, you know what? I am going to help you. You know what I mean? And like, I think in time people saw like that I was committed to getting it right and respected that, that. And so eventually the floodgates really opened. And the crazy thing is, once they did that actually didn't necessarily make it easier because now you're really filtering out the signal from the noise. Right. And there's a lot of people now and you're like, Oh shit. Like actually having a volume, that was a lesson I learned. Like volume is not necessarily quantity. Right. And yet the more volume there is, the more little nuggets that will emerge. So it just becomes a more laborious kind of time consuming thing to sort through who's legit and who's full of shit. Yeah. And one of your biggest stances has been that D three coaches should probably get more of a look. And I think I probably speak for half of a 10 Twitter. When I say at this point, one guy in specific that you've named multiple times, I want to see Ben McCollum get a D one job just to see if that kind of makes your theory end up being right. Yeah. And he's a D two guy who importantly, who's one, multiple national championships and is not even like, I don't even think he's 45. So he's even above the D three realm. Um, and, um, he's an interesting one because like, but yeah, I mean, we, we, you know, they're become like these favorites, um, and they kind of become like, like memes of the show. And then that's probably a mistake on my part where I kind of like make it a bit, almost and I don't always fully vet now he's one I feel very confident but like it's it's tricky because there's always like the flavor of the week and then you know then you're going to be wrong sometimes too but yeah uh a hundred percent like d2 d3 naia juco uh high prep aau there are great coaches all up and down throughout throughout the sport and there are excuse me and there are um not great coaches all up and down the sport and because there's just so few jobs at the d1 level you have some spectacularly talented people who've toiled at you know places you've never heard of and just one and one and one and um you know you just hope they get their shot and a lot of them never do or or get content at a good gig at a high prep or a D2 or D3 with, you know, solid resources or whatever. Um, but I was just kind of obsessed with the notion of like, of um, complicating people's thesis when, when it comes, not even people, but hiring managers. Right. And honestly, part of it was that like, look, it's not, it's a structural thing. I don't blame an AD for hiring an assistant from from a power five to take over an A10 job or whatever, right? Because if it goes wrong, you know, you take like Matt McCall's a good example, who was not a terrible coach at UMass, but if it went wrong, which it did, the AD can pretty plausibly say, look, you know, he was he really won pretty big in two years at Chattanooga. He was an assistant under, you know, maybe the best coach in the country and Billy Donovan for many years 
um, he, he sort of checks all those boxes. Like, and if it goes wrong, it's like, you know, it's kind of like when you hire a kid from Harvard, um, if he sucks, well, you can still go back to your boss and be like, look, I mean, he had a three, eight at Harvard. Like what else do you want? It's an entry level role, you know? But if you hire the kid from Dayton or UMass, who's you probably believe is better, but he's got a three, five making that ar- argument to your hiring manager is like, yeah, I want to take the kid from the less prestigious place who has the less good GPA, because I think there's these intangibles and blah, blah. Okay. But if you get that wrong, it's like you just passed on a three, nine from Harvard for that. You know what I mean? And so what I was trying to do after a while was basically, and I, I mean, this is a little delusional. I don't think we've gotten to this point yet, but slowly and surely like, provide that cover for risk averse athletic administrators to feel as if it's okay to take some of those risks because the astonishing thing, you know, when I talk to people from Texas JUCOs to the Ivy league, you know, every level of the game now, and it's astonishing how many of them who don't know one another, who are from totally different, you know, academic places um, will mention the same random names of people, you know, like who aren't otherwise famous outside of, you know, hyper insider basketball circles. Right. And the, the critique that these guys will say off the record, the most more than anything at all levels will just be like, you know, it's maddening how hiring is done and how little often many of these ADs, not all, but many of these ADs or college presidents or, or search firms or whomever is ultimately tasked with, you know, making the hire, how little they know or care about the kind of granular uh, details of who can really flat out coach. And when you then say, well, who can really flat out coach, the number of names that come up repeatedly would shock you. I mean, yeah, there's like a wide variance to, to a certain extent, but you're just like that high school coach, like that NAIA guy, that like what? You know what I mean? Like, because in those worlds, people sort of know and they meet at, you know, networking events or whatever, or they or they just watch a lot of tape, you know? I mean, I have guys who are assistants and they'll tell me, I'll ask them about a, a kid, you know, who they're recruiting and they'll, they'll walk through like the AAU offenses that 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 kid is running in and how impressed they were with such and such a you know it's like and so i'm just trying to like if if there's enough noise being like ben mccollum ben mccollum ben mccollum ben mccollum now when you if you hire him and it doesn't work out okay like it's still okay to you know make that hire rather than going with a retread who's on his fifth stop and is like kind of a perennial uh 18 and 13 coach who you know will maybe get you into the second game of the tournament every nine years whatever like whatever the you know and I just think like there's so many good guys out there that I sort of gotten a little obsessed with the idea of getting some exposure for some of these folks yeah and it's it's really interesting to hear a lot of those names because these are guys that aren't being spoken about by the national media and that that was honestly, to me, probably one of the biggest reasons why I kept t- tuning into these spaces 
to hear about the random assistant that's not getting any play or the coach at tiny little school X. And it, it was pretty enlightening, if I'm being honest. Well, I appreciate that sincerely. And that was what I was trying to do. And it's, it's still going to be an uphill battle, right? And like, there are reasons for it. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not delusional about this. I mean, look, like even now, um, I don't want to give too much away, but Trilly Donovan, the uh, other prominent, more prominent um, burner account, and I are working on a project of, uh, without saying too much, we're, we're trying to rigorously assess who the top uh, assistants are in the country. And we're asking people from every rung of the game, from agents to NBA scouts to power five head coaches to, you know, D3 coaches, assistants to general, you know, to GAs, grad assistants, who's on that list. And it is true that there is kind of a, a kind of a, a fully vetted cohort of 15, 20, 25 guys who are mostly associate head coaches at, you know, major power five schools who are kind of widely known and widely respected. That, that much is true. So there, you know, there, it's not as if all of this is just made up. Like there are people whose reputation, reputation precedes them. And I'm not delusional about that. And I'm not trying to undermine those people. Some of them are quite good. I think you have to also in this, like, I had to train myself to be uh, not reflexively contrarian, you know, to actually be like, all right, like, because I was always looking for like the money ball, you know, outside the box angle, but sometimes, you know, like conventional wisdom is right. Right. And so you gotta be, you gotta be careful not to get too into the like contrarian rabbit hole. But then even among this, the same people who are mentioning those like kind of vetted associate heads at, you know, prominent schools there's people who are just like this guy and it's like a totally random you know assistant third assistant in you know the aac or something you know <laughs> and, and then you're like oh let me let me poke around on that and you look and you're like huh that team was you know 12 and 20 and then the year he got there they were 20 and 12 and the next year they were and then there's a little article in some local newspaper about how you know with the kid quoting make it quoted saying like how this was the lead recruiter or, you know, and then you, or you see like, and then, and then you get, you know, you start talking to someone. It's like, well, be honest, like that guy, when his when he did scouts, you know, he scattered an opponent, we were 16 and one. And when our other assistants got the opponent, we were, you know, four and 10, you know, like there's like these, and there's like, and it's, it's tough because the data points on assistants are so difficult, but yeah, like, it's important, I think, and, and to be quite honest, many of those guys are bad self-promoters. And the truth is, like in any other profession, and you know, we you know this in the professional world, there are some people who are good at getting jobs, and there are some people who are good at their jobs. Sometimes it's both. Obviously, the ones who it's both, those kind of are your you know going to be your ideal because there is a self-promotional element in this world that's a precarious universe and but yeah i mean i did enjoy getting to know guys who were who were quirky or different and highly regarded and um and i think they appreciated um my willingness to kind of like understand because like nobody's perfect right and i think a lot of times in this universe like the guys who do pass muster, who are the safe hires, who are the risk averse hires, are the ones who 
present well enough um, to where they win the press conference, uh, you know, can can play ball with the administrators, um, and those are those are real factors. I mean, you got to know how to get along with your employer, but um, and so as a result, no one wants to be known as different or outside the box because they're worried that like that's going to define them, and and then if when there's a job opening and there's 400 people that they're vetting, any little red flag becomes like, eh, just put them in the other part, part of the pile, you know? And so I think like, I'm just like into the idea of it's okay to be a little different or to, to not win the press conference or to, you know, there's, there's, me, you, there's many ways to skin a cat and there's many varieties of good coach. There, there are certain uh commonalities but there's a lot of quirks too it's it's as i said that idiosyncratic is just it's that's the only way i can describe it yeah and it's kind of a good way to describe all the content that you're putting out as well very different from what other people are doing and one of the things that makes it different and we'll we'll basically close things out here uh, I still remember putting on a UMass-based spaces back about a season ago where the show promptly ended because you fell asleep. Has that happened in any other space over the years? Oh, I think it's happened maybe two or three occasions. You know, I have two kids, a full-time job, and um, I would say from like February 20th to April 1st or so the amount of time I was putting into this was just like I mean when I wasn't working um and I wasn't with my kids or whatever like it was a singular obsession and you really lose yourself in it and it was kind of a hard to describe way um and yeah there were a few nights there where I was just like on a show and you know I'm prone to humor anyway so I think people kind of thought maybe it was a bit or something and nope I was just that tired I was on a space talking and then whoop now I'm not I'm I'm asleep and somebody would you know inevitably stay on and record me as I snored uh and then it would become um the uh talk of my very niche slice of the internet for the next uh 24 hours um but you know like uh if that's the price to pay to uh Chase down the the scoop on who's going to get the uh, Idaho basketball job. I guess <laughs> I guess that's the, that's the price you got to pay in this life. Yeah, and we'll we'll close things out here with UMass. Final question for you. I'll, I'll give you three different options here: a uh, top half, right around average, or pillow fight team. Where do you think UMass ends up this year? Ah, oh, I hate these. Um... Can I, can I discuss my thought process at least? Sure. So, as I said, I do think Frank is a group-based coach. And he does seem to like this group. He kind of liked last year's at this point. August is, you know, it's always too early to really know. I do think the A-10, it, I, I don't even have a sense of the A-10 because there's just so many new players everywhere, you know? Um. But I do like our non-conference schedule in terms of how it flows. A lot of very winnable games early on. 
um, West Virginia in Springfield, Mass, which is 20, 20, 25 minutes from campus. And that West Virginia program is kind of in shambles at the moment. Um, not that you'll win, but you never know, you know. Um, and then and three games in Hawaii against, like, bad high major teams and kind of decent mid-major teams. You got, like, Georgia Tech you open with, first-year coach, Safara Gapare, who left UMass, plays there. But the point being that, like, you get some confidence early with wins over Albany and Harvard, who's really down this year, and Lowell, who lost a lot of guys. Like, um, you, it wouldn't shock me if they entered Hawaii at like, uh, you know, six and two or something, and stole two games, and now you're eight and three, and you, you go into not into conference play nine and three again, and we'll see who they play to start. But I do think there's like a, a real momentum element here. Um, and I just don't know how good the A-10 is going to be. So I kind of feel that this is going to be a 10 and 23, a 10 and 22 team or a 22 and 10 team. And like, the truth is you have to, I'll just pick the middle because it's easier than to go all in on one of those sides. But I actually think they'll end up having a surprisingly really good season or a really kind of, ugly road to how I, I don't actually see it being in the middle. Um, <laughs> but by virtue of just playing the, 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 you know, taking between the, the two extremes that I foresee, I will say they finish like, you know, I think that, I think the normie kind of conventional pick here is to say, you know, in the eight to 11 range, right. Uh, Nine to 12 range. Right. Because they lost a lot of good players on a team that was, what, what seed did they get last year? Like 13, 12? Either 12 or 13. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, and, and the thing is, like, normally you're like, oh, it's a year two under Frank Martin. But the thing is, like, year two under Fran Dunphy, year two under Archie Miller. It's year two. Like, there's a lot of good coaches in this league who are also rebuilding and doing their thing. And Bonnie just got the kid from Cincinnati. And, like, you know, VCU is bringing in. Ryan Odom, who brought in a bunch of studs and like, it's it, you know, and Travis Ford is fighting for his job and Anthony Grant is coaching for his job. And like, there's, there's UMass is, hold on, sorry. Mm. Frank Martin and UMass don't need to win as badly as a number of other programs not to mention like duquesne is loaded and they want to sort of send dan brought out potentially in it was a great year there's, pe there's people who think they could win the league so caputo's in his second year like so it would be it would be hard to say like mass is, is like destined to finish four places above where they were last year given the losses that they endured but at the same time like i think that um curry and Davis are a really good freshman guards. And I think Cone is a really legit post presence. And I think Matt Cross is one of the best players in this league. So the chemistry is clicking. You can't tell me any of those. You can't tell me that Duquesne's going to win by 30. You know what I mean? Like, there's not – you saw the league last year. It, it just – nobody was that good, right? Like, nobody, you know? Yeah, with the portal and the nature of, like, all these rosters being um, – so, so, you know, varying so much, like, and all these other coaches who are, you know, improving their programs in the, in the league, like, 
who do you think is going to, where do you think UMass is going to finish? Them and George Mason are the two teams I can't figure out right now. That's a, that's a big reason why we wanted to have you on today. Kind of start to suss this thing out. I would say right now I picked them right at the top of the pillow fight. So like 10th, 11th ish. Yeah. I'd yeah. say right now you- my, my gut says pillow fight for sure, but I think the freshmen give them more upside than a couple of other teams in that range. Like I, I think they have a lot more room to go up than a Richmond or a Rhode Island right now, but I could also see it about the same as last year. So even it wouldn't surprise me. I think that's right. Like Richmond around and like, but I, and you don't, I presume like you don't think LaSalle is going to be as good as they like there. I don't think mm-hmm. LaSalle getting this. Yeah. Like, so, and now like, but then like, here's the other one. Like, where do you see St. Joe's? Some I people. wanted to wait a little while before I pissed off the St. Joe's fans, but like four or five. No, St. Joe's range. fans, I feel like would be like, <laughs> would be like, we're going to suck even though we're really No, good. they're starting to hype themselves up. That this is I the just, team in the year. I know they are, and I know they got some talent there, but it's like Philly Lang has done nothing. It's like really bad. And so, like, I just, I don't, I, I you know, and again, my bias is like, I can't even keep track of rosters and personnel anymore. So I just kind of play it based on coach. And even coaches who, who struggle often will have a great year every, you know, five, six years. So it's, but I just have seen too much Billy Lang to be like, oh yeah, St. Joe's, like they could have LeBron and I'd be like, eh, they'll finish six. You know what I mean? I mean like, it's I, just. I'm going to withhold judgment on St. Joe's because by the time this podcast comes out, they're going to have a new Hawk mascot. We'll see what that looks like, but that, that could be a game changer. I mean, if the new Hawk sucks, then they're in really big trouble. I mean, that Davidson mascot they rolled out was oh, abominable. Oh what a disaster. <laughs> it's so funny to me, like, the fanfare that goes into uh, some of this off-season news and the way in which A10 Twitter just, like, roundly lambastes random shit and it becomes, like... You sit there thinking about it and you're like, imagine being, like, the kind of, like, uh, you know... Davidson Office of Public Affairs or whomever oversees their branding. They spend, they spend, you know, they have a committee that says we we should get a new Wildcat and they go out and they put an RFP out, you know, and they get proposals and just retain some graphic design firm out of Charlotte or something. And they're like, okay, come up with a new thing. And then they get back and they, they, they come up with it and, and the, four people say looks great we're gonna roll it out and then all of a sudden just like bizarro world people on the internet from dayton ohio and you know western massachusetts and you know the southern tier of new york bordering pennsylvania are like you know doing just eviscerating this liberal arts college in the middle of nowhere north carolina for their choice of a wildcat like can you just imagine the uh, the person who keeps track of their daily communications for the school as they send around their little clips for the day to the uh, to the uh, you know senior ranking administrators or whatever and trustees and and you know it's not like Davidson College is getting featured in the New York Times every day it's like the mentions are just a bunch of weirdos on the internet being like that's the ugliest wildcat I've ever seen and just imagining like the 
the bizarre, like that person reading that and being like, wait, who is talking about us? You know what I mean? Like, it just gives me a, just a wonderful uh, delight to think about just the awkwardness of those sorts of interactions. I mean, these are the same people who have made Bernadette McGlade probably the second most criticized <laughs> person in college sports behind only the guy who let the Pac-12 die. Uh, to be fair, the Bernadette McGlade thing is like almost purely a bit and really promulgated by like four people. Um, but you can you say the name. It's Ghosty. Yeah, Ghosty. Ghosty's bit about Bernadette McGlade, while like completely over the top, if you know him or have gotten to know him via the internet, um, you can't help but love it. And yet it's just like, I always think about this where, especially generationally, if you burn out it's probably 60, I'm going to guess, right? Like she didn't grow up on like, like online. She, she's, she's tasked with, you know, most of the time kind of, you know, you gotta think of like a Monday morning meeting. It's like Bernadette McGlade comes in and, you know, it's like, okay, we're talking, uh, what do we got from for like you know in the in the in the office and where are they like in in like you know Newport News Virginia or something right and she comes in and she says okay what do we got uh, on you know uh, the women's tennis tournament in six weeks or you know like and just all the kind of like banal details of administering a conference like decidedly unsexy stuff right and then it's like uh, what do we got from you know uh, the the chief communications officer of the A10? Like, what are you hearing? What what are people around the league saying? You know what I mean? And it's like, uh, uh, Miss McGlade, uh, we've got a we've got another uh, thing, uh, you know, calling you a terrorist. Um, you know, like or whatever, like ironic meme lord comment that someone's making that is, of course, not intended in any real way. But like, when your head is immersed in tennis scheduling, and you know re-upping the deal for women's basketball with you know uh M nbc sports after nask after like indy car racing on saturday mornings like you aren't actually thinking anyone out there is talking about you ironically it's like so far from your from what you're thinking about that it just cracks me up to just imagine uh you know because anyone who's like invested and immersed in this stuff is like and I say this uh, lovingly, but you're kind of a weirdo in a fun way. And and it's just so funny to think of. Because, like, if you're the Kentucky SID or something, like, that's a part of your life. You know, you just know it and you, you keep tabs a little bit. But just the volume is like you can't. But if you're the A-10 commissioner, like, you're not expecting that to be a big part of your life. I don't know. It's just great. I just love pondering that. We have to just end there. Like the, we we can't we can't make this pod any better. So Curry Hicks Sage, where can everyone find your great stuff? Uh, Curry Hicks Sage on Twitter. Um, I am now making a somewhat of a robust push to get more people on what we affectionately refer to as the other site, which is to say, uh, um, Blue Sky. You have to get an access code, but they're they're percolating, they're cir circulating out there. And I think Twitter, you know, for all the joy it's brought us and all the, you know, preposterous amounts of wasted time, if you want to call it that, that it's, uh, that it's uh, you know, brought us over the years. It has gotten, whatever your thoughts, personal thoughts are on Elon Musk, it has gotten just worse as the 
interface. And I think it's time to start thinking about what comes after, which is probably healthy. And so, uh, you know, though my following is like 170th, what it is on Twitter, uh, Blue Sky has some promise. It's a little kinder. It's a little funnier. People are a little looser because they're not, you know, not everybody's on it yet. And uh, so I'm over there, same name. And then, um, yeah, we do we do Twitter spaces um, for the audio stuff and then occasional UMass basketball podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, like and subscribe, give it five stars, whatever the whatever the generic thing you're supposed to say. Um, always open for DMs, curryhicksage at gmail.com. I check, uh, I don't know, every six weeks. I, um, so don't be a stranger if any of this uh, intrigued you. And thanks again, guys, for having me on. I always love to do it. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Sage. Everyone, be sure to go give him a follow. All right, and a thank you to everyone else for listening to this episode. We'll have a few more coming to you over the next few weeks before we really get into our season preview stuff. The year is upon us. Be sure, if you haven't already, go back and listen to some of our last few episodes. Talk Loyola with Kevin Sweeney. We talk St. Bonaventure with Robana X. We talked about St. Joe's with Hawk Hill Hardwood. Previewed some of the best players in the conference coming into the year with our red, white, and blue chips. Go back, take a listen to those episodes. We're in the the dog days of sports podcasts right now. So be sure to check those out. Be sure to keep an eye out on our Twitter feed, on our podcast feed. We'll have more episodes coming for you in the next few weeks.